0: Hello and welcome to Midriff, the podcast about gender, music, and music gear. I am your host, Hillary Jones. So here in Rhode Island, we are really crushing it, not to brag, uh, but we are a really small state, very densely populated, uh, just three hours from New York and one hour from Boston. And as of today, our COVID cases are Way down, which feels awesome. Um, it's been wild, obviously, as with everyone else. You know, I've been thinking about this, especially since our four-year-old is going back to preschool tomorrow, which is like moderately, not tomorrow, we're going back next week, but it, it's moderately terrifying, as you might imagine. And some people might think that we're like terrible parents the our school the school is taking tons of precautions they're doing everything possible that they could do um and we feel really good about it which is great but uh i have to say it's a real bummer to see where things are at around uh you know most of the rest of the u.s right now and you know at this rate it's like are we ever going to see a show again i'm not sure they're starting to actually do shows here which i feel a little bit weird about um or at least people can do shows here and I, i I don't know. I I think if they're outdoors and there aren't too too many people, I can I I feel comfortable with that, but I think they're actually allowed in um indoor venues as well, which is kind of freaking me out. But it's honestly at this point our rate is so low, I think we had like 36 cases yesterday or something that I feel a little bit better about it. I guess, I don't know. I don't know that I would go, but it's it's just and it's, it's interesting to see how this is playing out across the country, and I'm just hoping that people can get it together enough that we're able to actually ever go to shows again, or at least like, you know, I, I, maybe I'm being a little bit ridiculous, but I think like uh, we really do need to be able to go out at some point. Lots of people's lives are dependent on, on this and, um, in every type of way, their, their actual physical lives, their, uh, emotional lives, their expressive lives, their work lives, all of this, uh, is super important. So I don't know. You know, for for personally, for me on the work front, I've been pretty busy. I've been, as of late, I've been uh, psyched to be running a number of virtual trainings and workshops on topics of privilege and oppression, gender equity, sexual harassment and bystander intervention. uh, An eight week workshop series with Earthquaker Devices staff who are fabulous. And two, three session trainings as a part of Riot Rhode Island's Changing Our Tune project, which I mentioned a little bit about last session or last episode, and that project is to prevent gender-based violence in the Providence music community. And you know, these have been really awesome. All of these workshops, uh, the Earthquaker ones, the Changing Our Tune ones, have been fun and challenging in very different ways. Um, but it's really great to be able to just like hear and hear people's experiences in different music scenes and really and and music spaces more generally. And it's In my mind, you know, every one of these conversations on this podcast informs these trainings, right? Like this is the place where we really get to dig into like one particular individual person's experience, which is then often supported by things like research, for example. So it and it helps, I think, get a deeper understanding of where folks are coming from. And it really sort of like puts a face to like any data points that people might, you know, use and, um, and in better importance of like the work and making change more broadly, right? And if you stick around after the interview, I'll share more about the importance of making change at all levels. You know, one implicit bias training isn't gonna cut it if all of the structures and power dynamics that cause the bias and the oppression in the first place are still there, right? So, all right, anyway, speaking of the interview, in this episode, I had the privilege of speaking with the one and only June Millington, Who is both a total sweetheart and a real firecracker? She's so fabulous. Uh, If you aren't familiar with her, she is uh, uh, the guitarist in the seminal rock band Fanny, which she formed with her sister Jean. Um, And they were the first all female band signed to a major label, Reprise Records, in 1969. And, you know, they played with like the Kinks, they performed on The Tonight Show, they even had like a you know two top 20 top 40 singles on billboards hot 100 boom uh after fanny disbanded in 1975 she went on to like a million other musical projects and endeavors writing producing and eventually started the institute for musical arts or the ima in 1986 with her partner ann hackler and you know the ima was sort of the precursor to the girls rock camp movement so the that didn't start until like 2001 so this is like way before that. And they have a barn and recording studio, huge overnight practice space or camp space. It is very cool. Um, June talks about the camp sum And then also, of course, about some of her early experiences as a musician. She is really on fire. And like, I think you're really going to like this conversation. She's so fabulous. If you listen to the podcast and you like it, please write and review it on Apple Podcasts so more people can hear about it. You can, of course, find uh, Midriff on Instagram, on Facebook, to follow along as well. All right, so let's head into our conversation with June Millington. (laughs) Welcome to Midriff. So great to be here. Thank you so much for being here. It's a beautiful uh, day outside in New England, so uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, absolutely.
1: I'm happy to be part of this.
0: Cool. So for folks who somehow might not know you, which (laughs) seems wild in my brain, but here we are, can you introduce yourself, your name, your pronouns, a little bit about yourself and your background with music?
1: Okay. I am June Millington. I'm a very simple she-she. I'm Filipina-American. My mother's Filipina. My dad was actually from Vermont. They met right after World War II. I was raised in the Philippines so I was 13. I'm the eldest of seven. And I'm bicultural and biracial, which is a very specific slot. Um, it's hard enough to be one, but to be both— Plus, my whole body is divided in halves because I don't hear on my left side and I don't have equilibrium on that side. And I didn't know that. I didn't know about the hearing till I was 13 and the equilibrium till I was 25. So I have a very interesting way of sort of synthesizing my reality and picking up information. In other words, I think pretty much I put it in my body rather than just and just remembering. It's actually in my body uh, embedded and I can retrieve that.
0: It's almost like you have a a different sense or you've had to adapt,
1: adapt. I did. I mean, my brain absolutely had to make it up because, I mean, I didn't know I didn't hear on my left side. So how am I going to deal with that? And I subconsciously, of course, my brain did. And with music, you have to use both sides of the brain for uh, one side's pitch and one side's rhythm. I think it's really fortunate that I picked up on music or we picked up on music, my sister and I, because it just was absolutely wow. Everything was glorified, you know.
0: It was all there waiting for you.
1: That's right. That's right. I still Mm -hmm. feel that way. Nothing Mm -hmm. has changed. I'm like five (laughs) and I'm 13 and I am 16 and we're starting a band. You know, it's all one thing.
0: (laughs) And I assume that, the, like, your ability to kind of integrate all of that has just increased over the years. I think so. And connection to your body.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I have yeah. intuitive hearing. I made that up. But um, I hear things that other people don't hear, number one. And so they, they uh, you know, I've had the, the phrase said to me so many times, you're crazy. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, that means I'm different, mm-hmm. actually. And they don't know how to parse me. <laughs> but I'm having to parse them in, and the entire world on my sort of own made-up terms. And uh, so that puts me even more as an outsider because here I am in the U.S. as an outsider. We moved here when I was 13. And then plus learning music as as an outsider and having to figure out has been pretty interesting. And now I find it totally fascinating.
0: Well, I was wondering about this too, because mm-hmm. I've, I've heard you talk about like, like being bicultural and uh, biracial before. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering how that kind of like, because obviously that has some sort of impact. You know, there's obviously a lot of challenges related to that, presumably. Mm -hmm. Um, But also the outsider status. I wonder if in some ways that allowed you
1: some flexibility. Oh, you're absolutely right. In a lot of ways, it's an advantage because whatever I get interested in, then I get sucked into the central mystery. And to me, uh, music is the endless mystery. And so, Mm. yeah, yeah. And so uh, my outsider status allows me to take a look at it kind of cerebrally, you know, I mean, I think what I'm saying is that if I'm interested in something, I I study it as an outsider, I want to know all about it. For example, the blues. We never heard the blues in in Manila, trust me. (laughs) That was Mm -hmm. the last thing I was thinking about in the Philippines. So learning about blues and learning about uh, the America, what I consider our best export, which is music, original music, mm-hmm. has is it just holds endless fascination for me. And I'm really kind of glad that I was so shy because I was bicultural, so I didn't have very many friends. Nobody except my sister and family understood our exact problem. Me and Jean were actually the, the closest in that. So, uh, you know, as an outsider, I didn't speak very much. I was very shy. So music allowed me uh, an entree into having conversation. And then I could get louder once I got into lead guitar. I could keep turning up. And as I turned up, I understood the contours of what I was doing. You know, and that's one of the things that I pass on in our rock and roll girls camps. You don't have to be super loud to have a loud presence. That's another thing. Right. So you can express yourself in, in, in a, a well-shaped, contoured way. It's your sound. It's your language. And I have chosen my language, you know. Uh, a lot of people mm-hmm. seem to like it, so I'm, I'm really happy about that, you know, because I, I feel like I do sort of have my own sort of hilltop that I <laughs> beam from. You know, this is my hilltop. It's the June Millington hilltop. Can you deal with it?
0: It's interesting too because I I think the the shyness piece too is fascinating mm-hmm. to me and I feel like a lot of musicians have this thing where it's like mm-hmm. they 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 feel like either as an outsider or somebody who's shy or something like that and then yeah. music provides this sort of like tool or it facilitates like a progression of some sort because obviously you're not shy now how has that progressed over the years
1: well uh, I would put key in in place of the word tool. So mm. once the key was in that lock and I turned it or we turned it, me and my sister uh, were on the musical journey together always, then it w- it opened a little bit and just that little glimpse that we got of the possibilities, you know, the possibility of entering this world, this possibility of listening, and then furthermore, the possibility of being listened to. And that happened within the first six months of getting to Sacramento for Manila, because I wrote a song hmm. called uh, Miss Wallflower 62. <laughs> and uh, that so was that you? Was, we got, yes, we got yeah. here in 61, and we did that at the junior high, uh, you know, teen show, variety show with two other girls. It was four girls singing, here I am by the wall again, waiting for this dance. And let me tell you, people would stop me in the hall and say, I really like that, and then just rush on. The way they do now, when they just stop me in the store or on the street or wherever, when I could go out and they say, I love your hair, and just rush on, you know? Mm-hmm. So somehow, you know, I, I've touched upon this way of, of um, uh, not really communicating, but beaming to the outside world, something which gets me a one line response, which totally thrills me. I love your hair, tells me everything. It tells me that they realize that I let my hair turn completely white as a political statement. Mm -hmm. They don't need to tell me that they know that I know that they know. So somehow these one word, you know, communication, I mean, one sentence communications just mean so much and they and they carry so much value. I I don't need to have whole conversations with people. I'm still kind of shying that way.
0: So can you talk a little bit about for folks who might not be familiar um, with the IMA, what that's about?
1: It's a nonprofit institute that my partner, Ann, and I started, well, we started to talk about it in 85, and mm-hmm. in 86, we uh, put together a board, and we decided we, we were going to actually start, so it was me and Ann, and believe it or not, Angela Davis, so from right there, you can tell that we're a totally subversive organization, <laughs> <laughs> and Roma Barron, who is Laurie Anderson's producer. So when you think of Roma, she's been on from the jump. Uh, I called her. Somebody said, hey, you should get get a hold of Roma Barron. And I called her. And she said yes right away. But when you think about what she's contributed to music in terms of, I think she's as important as Thomas Dolby, but of course, mm. is not spoken of Sure, <laughs> very much which kind of, you know, pisses me off, but, um, that's the world we live in, you know? So anyway, um, and now we have, uh, Leslie Ann Jones, who, if you know, I think she Mm -hmm. has like five Grammys. She runs Skywalker in Marin and, uh, we have Leanne Unger who teaches at Berkeley you know, and we have um, on the board All also is Catherine Wilmore. And, and the reason why I asked her is because she was one of the vice presidents at MIT, and she's a good friend. But since we are intent on passing this on, right? It, it just seemed so, uh, it, you know. It seemed incumbent to learn about how about institutional memory. For sure, mm-hmm. I'm really interested because in you. I don't think you can just say, "Oh, we're going to hand this down to the future, gener- the next generation." Mm-hmm. Yeah, there are a number of steps you have actually. So, you have so, to be so,
0: systemic, yeah. for sure. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right.
1: So we exist to help all women in music in any way we can, and that's a huge, broad statement. And for that reason, most of the people whom we Women we talked to about it in the beginning said, "Oh no, that's too big. You just can't. You know, you have to contain it or something like that." But I'm not the type of person to to be contained. Mm-hmm. And fortunately, Anne, uh, you know, uh, had the same idea. So we continued that. So the the thing is is to help all women in music in whatever way we can in the moment. And let me tell you, that was a big thing to learn because, you know, you want to do everything all at once. Mm -hmm. You want to do all these classes all at once. You want to buy an old school that's unused and start classes, you know. But actually, within a couple of years, I came up with this um, mantra of my own, which was do what you can when you can. Mm -hmm. So that means you have to actually, we get back to listening. You have to listen to what people are saying that they need. And it totally has worked for us because, you know, 86 to now, we're, we're, I think, bigger and stronger than ever. We planted the seed. We watered it. We definitely give it food and nourishment. And now we have all these girls who, we didn't start off with our rock and roll girls camps, by the Mm -hmm. way. That was not even an inkling in, in our minds. But when we bought this property here in Goshen, Massachusetts in 2001, all of a sudden, Oh yeah, we we could do this. We could do that. You know.
0: How did you? So you started in California and then you
1: moved to Mass, right? Actually, we started in Amherst because Anne was oh, the director okay. director it. of the Women's Center at Hampshire. Yeah, got it. Okay, okay, got it. Yeah, yeah. And then so. we moved. We didn't do any programming here. Then we moved to California because I wanted to be near my family, mm-hmm. and that's when we expanded. And uh, we IMA West ended up being in Bodega, California. We could see the steeple or the church where Suzanne Plachette had her eyes pecked out in the movie The Birds. Whoa. That's Bodega. That's <laughs> Bodega. It looks exactly the same. So rock and roll. That's
0: a fabulous story. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> how has quarantine affected IMA's programming? So I know you're all doing these live streams. Mm-hmm. What else is happening? Mm-hmm. What you, what, how has this put a hitch in things?
1: Yeah, well, we are switching to virtual camps this summer. And as I know, you know, from just doing this podcast, that mm-hmm. is a huge undertaking. We can't do it in person right now. I mean, there the barn is, you know, with two recording studios right. and all that equipment, but we can't do that right now. So we're switching. We're doing them. Actually, we're not doing as many. We used to have five per summer. Now we're going to have one preteen, one teen, and one recording camp. That makes sense. So that what is what we are working on, you know, pretty much night and day right, right. now. I feel like everybody's doing
0: this, like transition to virtual. It's just so much work, so much work. Yeah. It's incredible,
1: right? You know, and in some way, you think, really, are we? How can we do this? How do we translate the experience? Of, for example, me, mm-hmm. um, you know, because I'm kind of infamous as the lead guitar player or a member of Fanny, right? Mm-hmm. And we were out there. We popped out in the musical fields quite a while ago. Uh, first band, Gene and I started was in late '64. So, you know, and we, we were in LA with a record deal by sixty-nine. So so but standing in front of the girls and passing on that direct transmission is I feel one of the reasons I'm on this earth. Right. <laughs> so now, uh how are we how are we going to translate that into the virtual thing? So that is our that is our new Koan, right. actually. You know? Hmm. hmm.
0: Yeah, it's wild because you're spending all this extra time, but you're it's it's so much harder to feel like you're making that same connection, even though you're spending yeah. so much more time. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah this IMA thing isn't going to go away because uh, women and girls and music need help in so many ways. Mm-hmm. You know, they need we need well, we need to know about our foremothers. I'm really serious about that. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to do a foremother series, by the way, on on the net. I'm going to start off with Sister Rosetta Tharp. Yes, I mean, please. I didn't even hear of Sister Rosetta Thorpe till after we moved here. Now, what is up with that? That is wrong.
0: Yeah. No, I feel the same way. I didn't learn about her mm-hmm. until probably like, I don't know, 10 years ago or something, which is exactly wild. There's, It doesn't make any sense. Yeah.
1: It doesn't make sense. I mean, it sense. does so and it doesn't, <laughs> but yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're going to make sense out of that, awesome. you know. So, you know, passing on what was before and helping the girls enable themselves to tap into their own creativity. Because one of the things, of course, that you notice if you're going to do rock and roll girls camp and you guys do girls rock, you, you know, that they walk in scared. Number one, most of them don't know each other, mm-hmm. maybe a couple of them with friends, but they, they have to get to know each other as a group. And they have to learn um, to navigate uh, the musical world, which is a very kind of spiritual world. Mm. You know, in in some ways you need to know the markers. You need to know where one is of the beat and you need to know where one is of the chord and one is of the key. Mm -hmm. Those are the three things I teach basically in my class. Mm-hmm. Which is uh, music as a second language. So yes, then, but then, how do you create from there? Because it's not. This is not like you go into school in class. You write down, you know, right. one plus one equals two. You have to experience something else. So that is the waking up that we are in, engaged in. Mm-hmm. And I, I take it as a very serious job. I don't know you do too. It's mm-hmm. incredible. The it's a tough job, but the rewards are. You know, you can't you can't even put a dollar amount on it. Right.
0: Yeah. It's, yeah. Every time it's just like mm-hmm. you're getting so much more back than exactly than you're, you know. Right. Yeah, for sure. It's great. You've told you've talked a lot about like your transition musically about like going from uke to acoustic guitar to mm-hmm. electric guitar and mm-hmm. sort of like having that progression at at camp. I'm wondering because over the last like, I don't know, I would say 10 years or so, the uke has really come back again. It's had like a, oh boy, a, a resurgence, right? Yeah, I mm-hmm. remember the first couple of years of camp, or a couple of years in into camp, when everyone was just carrying around a uke, and so mm-hmm. and initially I was like, "What mm-hmm. is this about?" And I and then I realized, like as you have talked about, like this the ease of entry of the uke do you have you seen mm-hmm. this transition with with the uke acoustic electric
1: at your camps oh absolutely and it it mirrors our own experience in the philippines we picked mm-hmm. up a uke at like eight nine you know one of our cousins had one or an uncle and he said yeah this is how you tune it my dog has fleas and you put one finger down you got a chord. it's magic and <laughs> it, it is magic and then if you're going it, well what we were hearing on the radio at the time was pretty much strictly pop music. So. Mm-hmm. Hey, Harry Belafonte. Those are easy songs. Yellow bird. Uh, let's see, uh Neil Sadaka. Calendar. Mm-hmm. I love, I love, I love my calendar girl. You know, and if you know one, six, four, five, basically you got pop music right there. Then like you right. just take out the six, one, four, five. You got funk and um the blues, you know, rock and roll. And if you just have one, the one, let's say a minor chord, not minor or major. Well, you've got uh. And everyday people, that is one chord people, Mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. or just a whole bunch of funk tunes. So, you know, that becomes the vernacular of what you're doing and you can do it on ukulele. (laughs) You could do all of it on ukulele, but the one six, so the one six, four, five, you know, heart and soul is the same as, I guess you'd say my girl, that's one six, Mm. four, five. (laughs) It's all there. Yeah, and even now when I point that out to she'll go, what? Yeah. She's just shocked every single time. I'm, I, you know, I kind of demystify that for, her. I'm singing some song and I go, yeah, that's one, six, four, five.
0: Mine just explodes. Yeah. It's so, it's it, so fun. It's, it's so cool to be able to, I think, like make those things. So like the demystification, I think is such yes. a huge piece yeah. of it. Right. Right. Cause it's yeah. just, it yeah. sounds, it really does. When you hear things on the radio, it sounds like magic. You're like, how does yeah. anyone do that? You know, but
1: exactly. Listen, when I first heard um Don't Worry Baby by the mm-hmm. Beach Boys, I was in junior high. So how do you I'm like, how do you start writing a song like, well, it's been building up inside of me for. That's the one. Mm-hmm. Go to the four. Oh, I don't know to five. How long? How do you do that? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it 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 was astounding to me because it went directly into my soul. There was no like, you know, like Go. There was thinking about go. I was at go immediately, uh, you Mm -hmm. know, right away. But how do you do that? You know? Right. And I think one of the ways that you do that, unless you're just in a, I I don't know anybody who's never learned a few songs previously before writing a great song. Right. So I think the steps to the castle is or are learning the the material um, that you love. You know, mm-hmm. I just recently learned um, Don't Dream It's Over, and I've always loved that song. Mm-hmm. I think that was 85. And yeah. I always thought to myself, oh, I got to learn that song. You know, I'm doing this live cast now from IMA, and I was doing it every day for like a month, and I'm just going to do it once once a week. But yeah. <laughs> I, I went on a hunt of songs that I love. And mm-hmm. I mean, you know, and then I could do, you know, Fanny on electric guitar or whatever. But the fact is I really have that book. That I can reference all the time and realize, oh my gosh, you know, Calendar Girl is way in there. It it, it walks through walls. Music literally walks through hall, walls into your hearts, joins us all together and just keeps going in community, in ha- community.
0: And it's like, it's like it provides this sort of, yeah, like a, a cultural reference that people can share yeah. And, yeah. and all of that. Yeah, for sure. So that gets to the access part, right? Because that's part of what you're doing is providing access through the programming. And so if some people feel like they're not able to access that, then that's that's
1: a problem, right? Yeah. And one thing that I noticed, for example, a lot of the girls who come in and they've had, let's say, a couple of guitar lessons yet. They haven't gotten that piece of linking all these songs through the ages, like, yeah, that's the 1645. Like mm. sort of having an overview, and you do these intuitive leaps of the mind. It sort of gives you a way to do that. And, and and bing, you know, yeah, wow. And I feel like that is so valuable. You know, you you do the you know, you're jumping over tall buildings. <laughs> Right, with yeah. just a couple of pieces of information, mm-hmm.
0: it's like it's like you hear this um, this music on the radio or whatever, and you feel this connection to it. You feel like it's mm-hmm. representing you, and then when you're able to replicate it or reflect it back, it's like you're able to it's it's reinforcing mm-hmm. all your identity or something.
1: It's yeah, it's so intense. And sometimes there are songs that you just simply don't understand. Let me give you an example: whiter or shade of or pale. What is it about that? I mean, it's about that organ and it's about that organ sound and it's about the way that it instantly gets inside you. Nobody understands all the words to water shade <laughs> of yet it's one of the edifices of rock music. Let's mm-hmm. face it,
0: it's right. so important. So what, what role then does music gear play in that process?
1: Well, you know, the the music gear can either enhance or be part of your oral message mm-hmm. okay a u r a l <laughs> so uh, so for example if you're playing electric guitar right mm-hmm. i always tell people you know you ought to be spending hour after hour learning your guitar you know all the settings and all the little sounds you can mm-hmm. do with your amp you should get to the top of the mountain with that you should know it and and allow it to when when you do that then you can allow it to surprise you. Mhm. You know, like all of a sudden you get some sound, wow, I didn't know I could do that. Wow. All of a sudden I'm playing everyday people and mm. there's like a new bounce to it. You know. So you got to put in the time and I think your gear is sort of it gives you the color and the fabric of your clothing. You got to put that clothing on you want to look good. You want to feel good. You want to impress people. (laughs) Well, hello, right? Mm -hmm. Get with it. Get with it because you don't just dress yourselves out of just whatever, right? You don't pick up rags on the street and go, this is great. Now I'm going to impress people, right? So you have to put time into it. And I, I totally believe that that is part of the, the key to having and a musical alphabet <laughs> mm-hmm. it is part of what you put together, you know,
0: yeah, well, and it's and I think it's also like when you really learn your instrument, it, it allows that comfort level where you can kind of pop mm-hmm. in and do things in a way mm-hmm. that feels you know more natural. but also when you're pl- like when you you realize that when you play different instruments or you try something a little bit different that it can elicit mm-hmm. a totally different musical
1: response in yourself, right? absolutely absolutely yeah. and the thing is you know i i was talking about electric guitar yes mm-hmm. electric guitar and an amp but you know with an acoustic guitar same thing mm-hmm. you know so they allow you to have an and just an edge with yourself mm-hmm. <laughs> when you're surprising yourself or you're being surprised that is just the best mm-hmm. you know and i love those moments and and it there we go back into, like, the domat- monastic discipline that I sort of conceived that when I thought I wanted to be a nun in the Philippines. <laughs> you You know, you have to get into that monastic place. It's your space, so you got to go into it. It's not like necessarily that somebody can show you, yeah, they can show you, but you have to experience it. And in order to experience it, you have to put in the time. Yeah. So that's very important. That's actually, it's like, you know, it's doing homework actually.
0: Well, it's like anybody that has like a really intense like yoga practice or something. It's like yeah, you're getting yeah. to this state where you're able to. I don't, I don't do yoga, but, <laughs> but for mm-hmm, folks who do, like mm-hmm. it feels like you have this ongoing practice and allows you to connect to yourself in a different way in the way that mm-hmm. like the ongoing practice with music can. Like obviously you're learning the skills while it's happening, but you're also connecting, I think, in a different way to yourself.
1: Yeah. And since I pretty much, I mean, I play a lot of instruments, but guitar is what I focus on. So Mm -hmm. let's think of it as yoga of the fretboard. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's good. So, yeah. So when I'm looking down at my guitar, there's basically three places that I'm thinking of. One is right where I am. Let's say four frets, right? Mm -hmm. Then you can look down the fretboard and you can look up the fretboard and you have choices every second of how you're going to play or you're going to access a particular chord or a riff or whatever. But you have to practice so much that it can be intuitive. Mm-hmm. You right. Know? So you or, can see
0: that next step ahead.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's It totally becomes intuitive. And that's, I think that's when you get into the meat and the magic of of playing music, you mm-hmm. know. So you
0: have... On your Instagram, or I'm sorry, on your Facebook, you post just so many cool pieces of gear. It's wild.
1: <laughs> yeah. It's all in. Our Every
0: time I too. see it, I'm just like, dang. Uh... <laughs> yeah. yeah. Do you have a particular setup that you kind of see yourself gravitating to at this point, like a amp or a guitar or pedals, whatever?
1: Yeah. I don't use pedals anymore because it just kind of complicates everything. Yeah. I, I went through all the pedals and then I found myself kind of dancing with my pedals yeah. more than, you know, actually doing the thing. But mm-hmm. I mean, I would use a pedal every once in a while, but let's just say I don't. Yeah. So it, it pretty much goes down to um, my number one intuitive guitar is my Les Paul mm-hmm. because I've had it for so long. And um, I feel like we're partners in everything we do. Mm-hmm. That guitar will pretty much do, and I have Les Paul Junior. That is incredible, also. But but I use that more for slide. Mm. Uh, and then my amp is is um. I mean, I have a lot of other guitars. Sure. But that, if okay. you ever want to see a cool mm-hmm. <laughs> a cool display
0: of instruments, find <laughs> yeah, find, <laughs> yeah. find June on the, the internet. Yeah, <laughs> but we're, if we're paring it down to the yeah. best, to so your favorite right I now, I have.
1: Yeah, I have a Fender DeVille, which Mm -hmm. I love because you pretty much can get any sound you want, because there's one pedal, and so there's clean, there's crunch, and there's overdrive. Mm -hmm. So you can set your amp to sort of service all those three with one pedal. Yep. And then, of course, I can change, you know, I can make the overdrive more overdrive to make it kind of more Jimi Hendrix-y if I want to. Is that a hot rod DeVille? then oh yes yeah yes yeah and is that i can't
0: remember is that the 410 or the
1: 212 i use the 410 got it Yeah, the two the 212s are um if you know that you can be playing at 11 most of the time you know because they're 212s is kind of more not i i I don't want to say brittle but it's less flexible there's less give Mm. because they're they're bigger the 410s boy you you just have that uh, way of having the give. I don't know how to explain it, like but more, I know it more when nimble. I feel it. Well, that's another way to put it. I don't know, you know. But um, it just it just gives you a, a, a warmer sound while being just as tough. Nice.
0: Yeah. <laughs> I I have never played a four ten before, um, but I have definitely found myself falling in love with like a um, super reverb or you know things like that in the past. And I think oh yeah, if I if I were using it just for myself in my house, I think I would probably, mm-hmm. definitely, that would be like my, a dream amp to have for sure.
1: Well, with a Super Reverb, you pretty much need to have pedals if you want to yeah. have completely different contour. I, I mean, I have a Super Reverb mm-hmm. here, and I'll only use it for certain things because it has a certain sound. Yep. But I, I, I use that Hot Rod because of the instant because flexibility. Because the flexibility, yeah. really... Yeah. And I've been playing for so long that I, I know how to access it and make it work. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, if I'm recording or whatever, I, I might, you know, I might get more choosy. I have a a Brown Tweed amp, the a Fender that I had in Fanny, believe it or not. Mm. It basically has one, you know, one volume. Yeah. one and, yep. yeah. So if I want to get that certain sound, sure I'll plug into that right. and turn it up. you know, we have a huge bar of, High ceilings, and we can push a lot of air that must sound amazing, and so also you gotta you gotta know what you're pushing you got to know the size of your room you gotta mm-hmm. know how the ample sound in in a church in a barn, in yep. a club in a in a small intimate living room space you know mm-hmm. I don't think I would bring that hot rod into a a, a small living room concert i mean mm-hmm. I could, but you know. <laughs> yeah. That's a little
0: <laughs> But even having that knowledge of like how do I have the have the amp match the particular room? Um, you know, yeah, yeah. Where in the where in the room do I put the amp in relation to the rest of the band, in relation to everything else. Yeah, it's like exactly. there's so many different well, pieces Well, I'm kind
1: of I have my slot with that because I'm deaf in my left ear. So I'm always on mm. the left side of the stage. If you notice on all the fanny videos or pretty much any performance that you can see of me. I'm on the left side of the stage. The reason for that is um, actually because of the way that my brain wired, I don't really see the left side that much. I mean, yes, I see it. I have two eyes, but, Uh, Everything is skewed to the right. Mm -hmm. So I I want to feel people on my right. I want to feel the bass. I want to feel the percussion, you Mm -hmm. know, if they're on my left. Yeah, it's, it's, I can make it work, you know, but you're not getting the full experience. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, I must say that having Richard Perry as our first full-on producer, um I'm so excited. Um you're so vain, fanny of course. Um mm-hmm. Stony Ann by I mean on and on and on. Well, he he trained us. He taught us how to record. Mm. And that was when you only had you only started off with four tracks. So you know if you're going to sing with three harmonies, which we did an awful lot, so you had to position yourself around the mic. You had to practice mm-hmm. the positioning. You had to know that the low part was going to be slightly lost in the mix, so the low part came in a little bit uh, more. So then you know when you mixed it, it would have a chance of being heard. All that kind of stuff. So yep. I'm I'm attuned to all that. So the recording techniques as You know, as dictated in the early days of tape and four track Mm -hmm. really translate well to now because I so appreciate Save As. Oh, right. (laughs) I mean, I love Save As. Do you do you have a tape set up in your studio or no? Well, we have one that hasn't been hooked up yet. I mean, mm-hmm. we've pretty much been, been digital since the uh, end of the nineties. Yeah, but uh, we got an SSL donated by uh, Berkeley School of Music through Leanne Unger, and so and then we recently had some tape machines donated. But with people not being able to come here, we haven't been able to right. Hook them up.
0: Not not a huge <laughs> uh, push right now for that. It's okay. It's on yeah. you know we do just <laughs> fine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. So as far as your connection with gear, as far as like gender and identities and things like that how has that worked Mm -hmm. out for you
1: well it's been a super long process you know you can only imagine what it was like to go into a music store in 1964 I can only imagine first of all yeah yeah, you can only people cannot I I get asked a lot of questions I have to ask ask them to rephrase the question because it doesn't apply to (laughs) the 60s for example you know Mm -hmm. You know, it was a double-edged sword because, number one, they just assumed you weren't going to be playing that, you know. Mm -hmm. But then you could kind of, you know, kind of stick your head into these little music rooms in your mind and start learning what what it was about. The only people to get information from was guys. So Mm -hmm. I had to be really careful. I had to find the right guys to ask questions, you know, to and Mm -hmm. get information from. So I would say... There were some, in the early days, there were some really nice guys in Sacramento who shared information with me. But once we got to L.A., that is when it all changed. Because I started to meet all oh, these great players. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, I became really good friends with Skunk Baxter and Lowell George. Um, even the pedal steel player, Sneaky Pete. I made a point to to become friends with him. Mm-hmm. Um, Elliot Randall of Randall's Island. Kent Henry who was a replacement guitar player in Steppenwolf. Uh, from whom I got that Les Paul, oh. I didn't even want to buy it. What, he, he what year is that? What year is that Les Paul, by the way? That Les Paul is a um, fifty-seven. Dang! So it's like a, <laughs> that's like an actual Black Beauty, right? It's not black. It's a sunburst. Oh, but, is it? Okay. Yeah. For whatever reason, and yeah. I, maybe
0: I've just seen black and white pictures and it said so it looked black to me, but anyway, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Okay. And the, the color has changed over the years, yeah. you know, because I, you know, but, um, so I had some mods done on that by skunk who was my guitar repairman. I didn't mm-hmm. even know he played guitar. Laura oh, wow. told me to go, you know, visit this guy. And, uh, and I did. And he was so excitable. I mean, he, he talked me into putting a, a master volume pedal on it, which is really great. Cause now you can do kind of that pedal steel sound. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's unique. It's unique. Mm-hmm. And uh, doing it without a pedal. And, and also he talked me into putting bass frets on my strat. I'm like, bass frets. You know, I was really reluctant to go for that. He said, yeah, you'll be able to move faster. Mm. And that was the magic phrase. So I let him do it. And you know what? He was right.
0: Are bass frets, like, cause I know, like a super jumbo fret is like, you
1: know, a lot of the shredders well, yeah, will use that, those. But... Right, but they're lower. They're lower on the fretboard, so you really can. You know, I mean, let's face it. It's like going on uh, for a sail on your sailboat on a nice Sunday, you know. And if you if you have that maneuverability to go around the waves and all that, you're flying more, and that's that's. What he did to my guitars really gave me much more maneuverability. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I did interview him um, last year, and that's, as you know, I'm going to start a podcast of my own, June Millington and Friends, and it's just talking about why we do music, how we do music like that. And, um, you know, I asked him about the early work he did, and he just started talking really fast about all that he did. Like the old days. (laughs) Some things never change. Yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, Elliot Randall's one of the best guitar players I've ever known. You may not know him, Randall's Island. He did the guitar solo in Reeling in the Years. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Yeah, 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 yeah mm-hmm. That's him. And he got onto that session because he was such a good friend of Skunk's. And, uh, you know, you can see the lack of ego when a guy like Skunk and Steely Dan would invite another guitar player to do right. that solo, to play to play in that song, you know? So those are the things, part part of what I learned is also to have generosity, you know? Give people the space to do their thing. You know, you don't have to do every lick. In fact, I don't even think I'm that great of a guitar player. I just know a whole bunch of things and I can just keep kind of gathering them. Every time I pick up a guitar, I think, oh, I don't know anything, you know? I just kind of feel like, oh, and then I just start playing and it just all starts kind of coming back. And then all of a sudden I got a part, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, that is for me part of the magic of doing it is that I keep gathering. I've got this huge net that I can throw out. I have a couple of set licks, but not so much. You know? And and I can fool around and skate around till I have my route, you yeah. know
0: like you have like a a lick library in your brain and you can just pull from it whenever you need to (laughs) take a, take, take one out for a little while. (laughs) Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, you know, I collected licks for, you know, I mean, like a monk for, I would say two to three years in the beginning when I first started to play lead, Mm -hmm. which was in 69. For example, I learned every lick in Rainy Night in Georgia. Mm. Do you know that song? Yeah. You do? Yeah. Okay. Well, those licks are, are are totally, you know, they're such a big part of our our library. Mm-hmm. But I sat down and I slowed the record down. You know, I'd, a lot of times I get a 45, I'd slow it down. Yep. Um, and I put the needle back in. It was really laborious. Yeah. But I know those licks and I can I can pull them out anytime, you yep. know, and I feel confident. That's the thing. If, When I give guitar lessons, I, one of the things I say is know what you know, Mm -hmm. know what you know, so that you're confident of that. And then you can let go of it. If you don't need it, fine. Something you have to,
0: you have to be a good librarian, right? You have to know where everything is in your library. That's actually
1: right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, that's a great analogy. Yeah.
0: So you, you mentioned that with your, you know, like going to shops obviously was weird and was challenging probably. But I'm wondering if there were, like, particular areas of of the music industry, whether it's, like, you know, music gear or recording or live performances or particular places where you found more challenges or successes than I think, others. I
1: think recording recording was the hardest thing because girls just were not led into studios at all. So just to be in, led into a studio as a recording artist was almost impossible. And mm-hmm. then you get to uh, maybe being a session musician, which is really... You know, I mean, the only person I know who has really succeeded in that is Carol Carol okay. uh, Kay. Yeah, yeah. Um, and what a player! And producers. I mean, there are more women producers now, but I would say the recording field was just so impossible to get the time to pay for it. You know, I feel really mixed about that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's, that's the area that I feel was the least available. The most available was to start a band, a good all-girl band. You could play the Air Force bases, the teen clubs, um, you name it. Once um, we got past, you know, going to a record, uh, um, uh, music store and buying the gear and we learned how to use the gear ourselves, then we were flying, mm-hmm. you know. But the recording industry, no. it's I mean, $500 an hour was what uh, I, you know I was paying at the Automat. Um, mm. when I produced Holly near or Chris Williamson, $500 an hour. And yeah. if you got a deal, maybe they go down to 300, right. But, you know, figure that, that out per minute. That's a lot of pressure as a producer, you know, cause I produce those records. Mm-hmm. So I had to make the deal and then I had to get to work. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think, you know, because we, um, our formative years were in the Philippines. I really know how to organize and, and work and do the homework and, it's those habits are really useful, I feel, in the music industry because yeah. you should be organized and you should be able to organize your time.
0: Do you think that that played into you? know, Because there's the stereotype about musicians, right? Uh-huh, uh-huh. <laughs> it seems like you're yes. saying that that your personality or your your what you learned when you were younger led to maybe more success because you 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 defied that stereotype.
1: Yeah. And I would say, you know, there's two things. One is that I have a default setting on, in my body in that I don't have hearing or equilibrium on one side. Mm-hmm. Therefore, I can't really drink, smoke cigarettes and do a lot of drugs. Yeah. And let's, that's not to say that I didn't try. <laughs> <laughs> and that's not to say that I am not wild in my own way. Sure. But I have a way of pulling myself back. Mm -hmm. And I think that is what has really saved me. So it's allowed me to have discipline. Mm -hmm. Like you have to be a little bit more self-protective or something. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I feel like, you know, yeah, you can go out on drugs and you can just get crazy and you can get with all these people and blah, blah, blah. But really, I mean, to waste that much time at a certain point, it's kind of a waste of time. Yeah. I would rather get things done, you know. I mean, I remember once, uh, after, at the, right around the time I was quitting Fannie, I was really, I was really depressed and, um, mm-hmm. somebody gave me a red, Do you know what that is? I've heard it's of like, it, but yeah. It's a barbiturate, right? Yeah, and mm-hmm. I tried it and I woke up three days later, and I thought, what was that? Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I did want to get to sleep, but I didn't want to lose three days of my life, you know, so, right. <laughs> like that. I have this sense of, I don't want to waste time. I got things to do. Yeah. And I'm very serious about that. Totally do you have people in your
0: mind that you think of as your contemporaries when you were in fanny like so obviously you broke a lot of barriers in eight bajillion different ways but like even if folks that maybe were a little bit after you that may- maybe you identified as contemporaries
1: well i mean bonnie Raid, mm-hmm. maria maldar you know, so there were a lot of folks that I ran into. I I, I loved the band Isis. I I mm-hmm. did an a, an album with Bertha was incredible. Bertha was incredible. I thought I could never even stand close to that guitar player. You know, I always had a sense of, oh, I'm never going to be good enough. You know, <laughs> that was my, my sense of it. And, uh, you know, as far as I could tell, they were a gay band or a bi-band. So mm-hmm. there was a lot of company. Mm-hmm. So...
0: You know, at at IMA, like you have a lot of girls and I'm obviously with with Girls Rock Camps, I'm familiar with this as well. But I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the power of collaboration in its Mm -hmm. connection to feminism.
1: Um, One thing that I'll say is that um, I I already knew this because I've been through it in the 60s, that girls in a band are a force to be reckoned with. Do not fuck with girls in a band Mm -hmm. because they are a pod, you know? (laughs) Uh-huh. And, and they got estrogen fever, baby. And really, you can't, you know, if they are, if they represent that, that's stronger than just about anything else on earth. And I mean, that's sincere. Just look at moms, for heaven's sake. You're a mom, you uh-huh. know. And, and Anne was amazed after the first year or two, she realized that bands that were starting in our camps... These women were seriously empowered. Now, I hadn't thought of it that way because I just lived it. You know what I'm saying? it just kind of you're flinging yourself on the universe. But that has been a revelation for her. And that has been a centerpiece to our, you know, what we encourage here. If girls start in a band but they don't have the gear, we'll lend them the gear. Right. Oh, yeah. If they want to have a lesson outside of camp, I'm happy to do that. So, you know, uh, that's an important piece of it. Mm Mm-hmm. When you've got girls walking down the street together, they're so much safer, aren't they? So you have that camaraderie, you have that community, and there's a certain understanding that unless you are in it and know what it is, you can't really say. you got to feel it, and they're feeling it. And one thing I noticed um, is that if all of a sudden I see the girls touching each each other's hair and speaking and those kind of tones and they're tattooing Mm. they're drawing on each other's bodies or their guitars now you're getting into something that is really really important they don't get to do that in school so much you know because yeah you're competing with other girls you're you're not supposed to touch other girls you know all that kind of you know the, the taboos but Here at camp, they can talk about anything they want, and they can pretty much do anything they want aside from hurting each other or scarring themselves. They're not so into that. I'm also wondering, did you
0: experience any, like, was there sort of like competition that was kind of pushed on you
1: with other women as you were, you know? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And I think that was part of our you know the stri- uh, we were striving to succeed and part of it was to beat everyone mm-hmm. else out but i think all bands have that you know that sort of ambition mm-hmm. because uh really you shouldn't be in a band if you don't have that kind of <laughs> edge uh kind of thing. i re- can i just give a an anecdote uh May Pang is a good friend of mine and as you know she was with uh, john john lennon for 3 years or mm-hmm. so and she said you know Uh, John would hear a new artist and he would say, not going to make it, not hungry enough, not not competitive enough, you know. So that was one of his... Uh, you know, yardsticks to how far one could possibly, you really got to want to do mm-hmm. it. <laughs> you really got to wish you had written that song. How much, <laughs> I, I, I see that for sure. And that I think it's yeah. a lot because mm-hmm. there
0: is so much that you have to, <laughs> like, you can't mess around, right? Mm-hmm. But also, I wonder how much of that is an internal, like, you, you know, wanting to compete and feeling like you need to do a good job mm-hmm. versus an external pressure. Mm-hmm. What do you think about that?
1: I think it's it's mixed. I think I all human beings have that or if you don't have the that fire to succeed and to compete mm-hmm. um you shouldn't even be getting into that field. So it's built into yeah. us. The the part that's difficult and here I'm going to veer off into a, a little story there was a an article in the New York Times magazine which I used to read avidly, you know, I had to read it every mm-hmm. week. And there was a story about a woman who decided finally to take an antidepressant, okay? When she's taken this antidepressant and she's really succeeded, she realizes because she didn't care who she run over, Mm. right? Like beating everyone else out was the goal. So, you know, I think that real success would be if you actually care about people all other people also. (laughs) And that, you know, like some of our so-called leaders right now Mm. only care about themselves and the outcome for them that's not the world i i feel like i want to live in and i don't think that's the ultimate music world right. the music world is collaborative hello i mean why do you want to be sitting in a room you know just playing by yourself or hitting two sticks together and thinking that's really groovy mm-hmm. what you know you want someone else to be experiencing it and being you know oh wow that's great mm-hmm so it's a shared experience, and that's one of the things I love about music. And the fact that my sister and I, you know, Gina and I played together from the jump and know the, the same exact repertoire is, is uh, you know, is really deep and really big for me. And her son, Lee, who is right now living with us because they got caught here at the beginning of the pandemic, um, he knows my repertoire mm-hmm. and he knows where I'm coming from. So when I do these live, live casts, I can just, you know, say, oh, come on and just just do this kind of a beat and then we'll start and, and he'll know what it is. So, you know, that kind of a shared experience, boy, money can't buy that. Yeah. Now you can play in an orchestra, right? And you can play Brahms and Mahler and whatever those are written down works. But when you're, when you're out on the tightrope and you're, you're creating it in the second In that second, it's a whole other experience. And that's what I talk about a lot when I have conversations with my musicians. Musician friends, you got to be willing to fail. Mm -hmm. And that is a big part of our camps of what I teach, you know, be willing to fail because there's also always that next moment. Right. And I've done enough gigs to know that you can be as rehearsed and as practiced and have all the right gear, the roadies, the PA, blah, blah, blah. You play the same thing one night, as the next night, and one of them is a huge success, and the other one is you didn't turn on the audience. What was it? Who knows? Mm -hmm. It's the same darn thing. You just did the same thing.
0: Yeah. I, the, having that connection, though, that you're talking about, like, so both having that connection to the other players, like it is where the real magic is at. And mm-hmm. I feel like that's part of the, the nice thing about playing live, too, because it's like there is that little like yes. you're on that tightrope, right? Something might fall off, right. you know, like or it could be totally, yeah. you know, like beautiful and magical and you never know how it's going to go
1: if it yeah. came out exactly. Well, you have to trust your bandmates and the audience yeah. because, you know, one of the things I tell the girls at our camps is, believe me, the audience does not want you to fail. Because if you fail, they fail. Mm-hmm. They're on your side. you got to believe that they want you to succeed. Even if you stumble and you pick yourself up and keep going, they love mm-hmm. that. So what I'm saying is music in a way you teaches you how to develop trust. You have trust with one person. Then you'll have it with three, maybe more. Then you'll have it with hundreds of people in your audience. Mm -hmm. You're all trusting you're going to have a common experience that's going to elevate you and make you feel better. And I love that about music. It really does teach you about trust. I know doing these girls' camps here has completely retaught me the value of trust. Mm -hmm. You can't do without it, really you know uh
0: all right so we're getting a little bit towards the end of the conversation here um I did want to in moving that towards the end if you were speaking to somebody in the music gear industry or in the in music industry more broadly who wanted mm-hmm. to make change around gender around racism sexism heterosexism
1: what would you tell them you know I don't really know how to approach a, a, a big picture thing mm-hmm. on that what I do know is If somebody tells me the truth and they're being honest and authentic, and I find out that that's who they are, what I'm saying is just do the next best thing for you and everyone else. Mm -hmm. I mean, you have to try. You have to try. You have to give people the space to be who they are. That was the only thing that gave me uh, a chance. Because no one was going to accept me. I didn't even know I was half deaf. So I didn't know I was, you know, what what do you call, not debilitated, but.
0: uh, But You had a disability.
1: Yes, and it's hidden. I have a hidden disability because people can't tell. People cannot tell. And I'm not trying to hide it. So, you know, having had the opportunity to just present myself how I am and find enough people to accept me. To accept that you don't have to like it, accept it.
0: Um, what else is coming up now for you and for IMA? Uh,
1: I'm doing the podcast series mm-hmm. and the virtual camps, as we mentioned. But the thing that uh, I, we haven't talked about is I'm turning my book into an audio. Oh, book. cool! Are you recording and, it? Yes. Yeah, so, cool. Yeah, yeah, in the studio, and I'm doing all the narration and the foley and. Creating musical files or finding stuff from before, because I'm kind of a, I am, I've been a a, and sort of uh, an archivist Mm -hmm. for a really long time, and then I found out that my father's mother was a real archivist. Mm -hmm. In fact, Pete Seeger got all the songs for his first album from her. What? (laughs) Songs of Appalachia. Wow. Uh Songs of Appalachia. She was a serious archivist, and. So I've got all the I've got cassettes of the Svelts and I've got rehearsals of Fanny and all this stuff. So whenever I want everything, anything, I just kind of just go look into my files and I can. So Anne thinks that that's actually my most important work because everything that I've learned goes into it. I can record it. I can narrate it. I can blah, blah, blah. So that's exciting. And after I start putting out the podcast and the Four Mothers series, I'll probably start putting out the audio book. So that's pretty big. That's huge, you know? yeah. And that's,
0: it's such a, I feel like it's like a really a gift to have that uh, piece of, you know, musical history available, you know, multiple different formats and have the, the audio connected exactly. to that and everything. All right. Yeah. So, uh, June, how can listeners stay in contact with you or hear more from you?
1: Um, well, they can definitely go to the IMA website, ima.org, and uh, June Millington at gmail.com. Should I give you the IMA phone <laughs>
0: the website <laughs> uh, your social security number and yeah
1: yeah 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 i'm on facebook so um i have two pages on facebook so actually three play like a girl and two june millington so you can you can find you're me. around you can find yeah me. yeah i am i really am awesome
0: this has been great thank you so so much for taking the time june june is the best Uh, she just had so many good stories and like tidbits to share. I feel like every little uh phrase that she said was like a shareable tidbit. Uh so good. I'll have links to all of June's contact info and mentions in the show notes. Um, so last episode I spoke a bit about the trans-theoretical model as a way of framing conversations with friends, like family coworkers, when trying to address racist or, you know, otherwise oppressive behaviors, beliefs, etc. This week, I'm going to scoot into sort of a larger framing for this work, which is uh, called the socio-ecological model, which you've probably heard of if you've ever taken a developmental psychology or public health course at any point. And the basic idea is that individuals are socialized and affected by a large number of forces at a variety of different levels. This is usually sort of like visualized. If you like, did a Google image search for this, it looks kind of like an onion. Um, and so there's like a circle. And the middle of the onion is the individual level where personal beliefs, attitudes, behaviors, are developed skills, right? Then at the next level, it's the interpersonal level uh, with our relationships. So that's like our relationships with family, friends, co-workers. And then the next level is the community level with schools, churches, neighborhoods, workplaces, and then, Last is the outside of the onion, and that is the systems or structural level. Um, so these larger level structures like you know, policy, public policy, the media kind of exist at this space. And people sometimes include another additional level, sometimes the names of the levels vary, but you get the general idea. So the model originally came out of work by Yuri Bronfenbrenner, who was a developmental psychologist, and he created the framework in 1979 as a way to think about child development and the forces of influence on children as they are developing. Um, But it has since been adapted and used in a whole bunch of different spaces. So what does this have to do with making change, you might ask? Well, people in community psychology, public health, activism, and other fields recognize that in order to make change, you have to do it systemically, and you have to do it across all levels of this ecosystem, right? Every single one, so individual, relationship, community, systems, and structural, right? Uh, So, you know, the unfortunate thing is that a lot of the conversations and work is really just focused on one level, and that's the individual level. So, and I mentioned this last episode briefly as well, but, you know, when we're talking about how we make change around, you know, change our personal attitudes, beliefs, and behaviors, that's, that's what we're talking about. And when people are providing folks with implicit bias training, as I mentioned, that's what we're talking about you only you know you often only only hear about companies providing implicit bias trainings and then people are shocked shocked that there are still problems and saying that the the trainings don't work so you know first of all those trainings usually aren't extensive enough or holistic enough to work but they mostly don't work because they aren't paired with like all of these other uh levels right so you're not you're not hitting the relationship level the community level structure level uh, and that's the major problem. So, like, did you address the hierarchy in the system, the power dynamics? Did you address the culture of the space, the written and unwritten, like, policies, expectations, trust, relationship building, community communications bet- between employees, right? Like, so if you're not addressing all of this other stuff, if none of that changes, then it doesn't matter how good your training is. It's not going to make long-lasting change, right? You know, so if you want to learn more about the socio-ecological model, which is fabulous, I'll add a link in the show notes so you can read about it to your heart's content. Um, (laughs) I think it's really good also to just look it up to see a picture and really visualize how it works. So uh, thank you for listening to all of that. Um, If you want to get in contact, definitely reach out to me uh, via the website, which is hillarybjones.com slash midriff podcast. I would love to talk to you. So thanks again, and uh, we'll check in
1: with you soon.